Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to PBCC. I'm Sharon Coleman, and it's so good to be back with you all this morning. Well, now I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word as we have our call to worship. This morning comes from Psalm 89, verses 5 through 8. The heavens praise your wonders, Lord, your faithfulness too, in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies above can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. Who is like you, Lord God Almighty? You, Lord, are mighty, and your faithfulness surrounds you. Then let's pray together. Oh Lord, how we do love to praise our Savior all the day long. Such blessed assurance that Jesus is ours. Singing of the great things that you have done and that you continue doing, you have conquered the grave. Worshiping together is a foretaste of glory divine. Yet, Lord, this week we have again felt what feels like just the constant tension of living between what you've already done and what's not fully yet complete. At every turn, we're aware of the tension surrounding the overturning of Roe v. Wade, the continued bombings in Ukraine, and the horrendous discovery in a semi-truck in Texas. Oh Lord, show us how to be your people, people of the cross, people of your resurrection in these times. Show us how to trust you and your promises that nothing will thwart your plans, your will. Help us to continue fighting the good fight, running the race that you have set before us, and keeping the faith. We trust in you, and we trust that not even death itself can prevail. And on this holiday weekend, Lord, with so many traveling and so many on their summer vacations, we pray for safety and we pray for patience. With all the traveling disruptions that are happening this year, we pray for the many who are weary and struggling. We pray that you'd give them rest and comfort. And for the anxious, we pray for peace and for drawing closer to you. We all need time to unwind, Lord, to take time with quiet with you rather than rushing, rushing to being productive and accomplishing things and ticking things off our to-do list. Thank you that you also love fun and celebration, so help us to remember joy. Even now, Lord, we turn and we focus on you and we ask that you would replenish our reservoirs. 
We come before you now for a few moments of silence and ask you to examine our hearts as we confess our sin and place our lives and our concerns back into your hands again. And Father, we praise you this morning for Kids Club. We thank you for George's report and we do pray that doors would stay open in our local schools where they currently are and we pray that new schools can also be reached. And we pray for you to put together the team for this 22-23 school year and we do pray for your ongoing protection in the schools. And of course we pray for more kids and adults to hear and choose to follow Jesus. <clears throat> As we're gathered here this morning, Lord, to remind ourselves who you are and what you've done for us in Christ, we realign ourselves with what you are doing through your spirit. We're your family. We're reconciled to you and to one another, and we are empowered by you to reach out to our world. So as we continue our worship service, we want to hear from you and we want to receive your spirit afresh in us and we want to bring you glory and honor and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, now we turn to our scripture reading to prepare us for the preaching and teaching that Eugene has for us. So I'm going to be reading from Mark 8, 34 to 36. Then, calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world? but lose your own soul. Very familiar, but weighty verses this morning. So we're gonna invite Eugene to come on up. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Good it's good to see all of you this morning. I just wanna dive right in to make the most of the time that we have together. We've been making our way through the second chapter of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians, and we're almost done, which means that this is my second to last sermon in this series, um, and uh, it's, I've just been really grateful for the prayers and the support and the encouragement that I've received from you all, um, from our church, from our family here. But yes, as we've been making our way through the second chapter of the of Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians, we've been thinking about what it means to follow the way of Christ. As people centered on Christ, we've been asking this question, what does it mean to follow the way of Christ? And throughout this time, throughout this series, my thoughts have returned again and again to the first people Christ called to follow him, the 12 disciples. And as I prepared this sermon, two disciples in particular stuck out to me, Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot. Christ could not have called a more incompatible duo to follow him than these two men. We know about the two sets of brothers and we understand what that must have been like, but even more than they, I believe these two men were the most incompatible 
people that God could have called together under Christ's discipleship. Let me remind you that it was the first century and the land of Israel was under the control of the Roman Empire. The Jews resented Roman rule. They felt politically and religiously oppressed and they searched for ways to restore Israel to its former glory. Now for some Jews, the humiliation and anger they felt eventually boiled over into a violent revolt about 30 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. These Jews believed that the only way to save their kingdom was through victory on the battlefield. And though he never went to war against the Romans himself, Simon agreed with this attitude. That's why they called him the zealot, the fanatic, the extremist. Matthew, on the other hand, was a tax collector. His job was to collect the taxes demanded by the Roman government from his Jewish neighbors. Instead of resisting the Romans, Matthew worked for them. Instead of risking his life fighting the Romans, Matthew made himself rich with their money, even if it had been taken from his own people. Now for Matthew and for other Jews like him, it really wasn't personal. It was the only reasonable response to Roman rule. What could a tiny nation like Israel do against the military might of the Roman Empire? Wouldn't it be better to survive under the Romans, maybe even outlive them, than to be wiped out trying to fight them? So there they were, Matthew and Simon, the tax collector and the zealot, two opposing sides of the debate. One believed that working with the Romans was the only way forward. The other believed that fighting the Romans was the answer. And I can't help but wonder, did they sit next to each other during lunch? When Jesus fed the 5,000, did they split a fish between the two of them? Did they walk next to each other when they were on the road headed for the next village? When Christ sent the 12 on their first missionary journey and told them to go in pairs, two by two, did Matthew and Simon team up? I don't know the answers to these questions, though I think we can guess. But I do know that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, on the night that Christ was betrayed, Matthew and Simon ate from the same loaf of bread and they drank from the same cup of wine. Perhaps they sensed that Christ was leading them into something greater than anything they had ever known before, something greater than could ever be achieved by their own plans, a, a new covenant, a new kingdom, perhaps even a new creation. Whatever it was he was bringing them into, their old ways of thinking, their old ways of fighting, their old agendas and ideas weren't going to work anymore. Something greater was coming. Fast forward 2,000 years and not much has changed. Oppression, injustice, violence, bloodshed, these are still part of our daily lives, our daily vocabulary, our daily conversations. And in our conversations with one another and with the world around us, we in the church often find ourselves asking or being asked, which side are you on? Which of these two sides do you take? Which side of the binary do you support? And wanting to be engaged, we choose a side. Whichever side sounds most like the one that we, what we've most recently read in the Bible. And then it's off to the races. Having chosen a side, we're told that because we chose that side on that issue, then we must choose the same side on another issue and another and another until an entire platform is filled out and an entire identity is formed. 
It's well-intentioned, of course. It starts from a place of concern and sincerity, but we've made a fatal mistake, haven't we? By choosing a side, we've accepted the premise that each of the important issues of our lives can be reduced to a black and white, this or that binary choice, an either-or decision, a pick between two perspectives, each designed to vilify and demean the other while enraging and mobilizing its own followers. By choosing a side, we accept the flattening of our world and of our identities. We allow ourselves to be turned into caricatures, predictable, two-dimensional cartoons, the tax collector or the zealot, and nothing in between. And most tragically, nothing greater than. By accepting the premise that there are only two ways to go, two competing, mutually exclusive answers to every major problem, most tragically, we miss out on the third way, the third way Christ demonstrated to Matthew and Simon, the third way that does not lead merely to a different version of the status quo, to a mere rearrangement of all the same broken pieces of our broken humanity, No, the third way that leads to an entirely new covenant, an entirely new kingdom, an entirely new creation. In Christ, there is a third way, the way to true victory, to true triumph, not just for our side on this or that issue, but for all humankind and for all creation itself. That is what we see in Colossians 2, 6 through 8 and 13 through 15. So let's get into these verses. As we saw last week, verses six and seven contain Paul's encouragement to the Colossian believers that they continue on the way of Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Paul paired this encouragement with a warning against following false teachers and influencers in verse eight. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. In the following verses, Paul gave the Colossian believers three reasons why they should reject these deceitful philosophies. The first reason is the deity of Christ. Christ is God. Any attempt to get closer to God that was not according to Christ is doomed to fail. The second reason is the transformation of Christ. What we talked about last week, Christ alone makes transformation possible. Paul explained that if they wanted to actually become people who love, trust, and obey God, they would have to go through Christ. In the new verses for this week, verses 13 through 15, Paul gave a third and final reason why the Colossian believers should continue in the way of Christ. The triumph of Christ. There are three questions we must ask to understand the triumph of Christ. First, over whom did Christ triumph? Second, what is the result of Christ's triumph? And third, how did Christ achieve his triumph? Who, what, and how? Paul answered the first question in verse 15. Over whom did Christ triumph? He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, to be precise, it is God the Father who has ultimately triumphed in Christ. But if you will hear me using Christ and God the Father rather interchangeably in this sermon, because the triumph of God is the triumph of Christ and vice versa. 
The point is that in Christ, God has triumphed over, God has defeated the rulers and authorities. So who are these rulers and authorities? The terms used in the original Greek can really refer to anyone in a position of power, including spiritual beings who can influence our reality without being bound by the rules of our reality. Angels, demons, even Satan himself. These spiritual beings, especially the ones in rebellion against God, these are the ones whom Paul usually had in mind when he used the terms rulers and authorities. For example, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul and the other biblical authors recognized the existence of spiritual beings who can influence our reality and have an interest in doing so. You may remember this chart I presented back in January. Though they are less real than God, some of these spiritual beings have chosen to follow another one of their own, Satan, in his rebellion against God. These fallen spiritual beings oppose all that God does, especially his work to save his people, to establish his kingdom, and to recreate the world. And because they are more real than us, they can exert influence on our world according to their agenda. So Paul and the people of his day referred to them as rulers and authorities. But their rule and authority are being brought to an end. God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Paul's word choices here is very intentional. In Paul's day, the Greek word translated here as triumphing referred to a type of military parade. This specific type of parade would take place whenever a Roman general would return home after fighting and defeating enemy armies. The general would take the leaders of the defeated armies and march them around the city, showing them off to all the people. Those who had once seemed formidable opponents would be exposed as utterly powerless before the conquering hero at the head of the parade. Paul used this imagery to describe God's total victory in Christ over the forces of darkness. The rulers and authorities were now disarmed and put to open shame, exposed as nothing before God's glorious reality. Though these fallen spiritual beings do attempt to resist God even now, their end has already been decided. Just as a chicken's body can run around even after its head has been cut off, so Satan and his angels are on borrowed time. And if you want to double check on that analogy, you can ask Sean. I'm sure he'll fill you in. (laughs) And when Christ returns, when Christ returns to finish them off once and for all, not only will it be their end, but it will be a new beginning as well. In 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 26, Paul explained to the Corinthian believers what would take place after the triumph of Christ is finalized. Then comes the end, Paul declared. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
When Christ returns to finish putting all his enemies under his feet, the end of this reality will come and the new creation will begin. Without any death, without any sin, without any weeping or hurt or pain. And in fact, in fact, brothers and sisters, in the triumph of Christ, which is already but not yet, this new creation is already here. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 18. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Now, the English Standard Version here actually over-translates this verse a bit. The Greek does not say he is a new creation, but rather something closer to there is new creation. No pronoun, no article. It's the difference between saying that person has changed versus that person is part of a greater change that is coming. You see, brothers and sisters, the promised heart transformation that we talked about last Sunday was always part of an even bigger promise, the promise of a new heavens and earth. Paul's language in 2 Corinthians 5.17 consciously echoes God's own words delivered by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 65.17. For behold, declared the Lord, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And no, he wasn't being metaphoric here, brothers and sisters. And the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Brothers and sisters, the new creation is coming and has already begun to appear in our own hearts as Christ transforms us from the inside out. With the fallen spiritual beings disarmed in Christ, there's no longer any real opposition to God's plan to replace this broken creation with a new creation to establish a new kingdom and to fill it with a new people of God. And so in answering our first question, we have also answered the second. Over whom did Christ triumph? Over the fallen spiritual beings resisting God, his purposes, and his people. And what is the result of Christ's triumph? Not only the transformation of the hearts of his people, but also ultimately the recreation of all reality. That leaves only one question for us to ask. How did Christ achieve this triumph? In verse 15, Paul said that God had disarmed the fallen spiritual beings. Well, what weapon were they wielding? Of what were they disarmed? Verse 14, the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. The weapon used by Satan and his angels is the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. In other words, the law of God, the righteous standards of a holy God who cannot abide unforgiven sin. Whether through the old covenant or through our own consciences, the law of God calls us to love, trust, and obey God. But if we fail, the law of God calls for punishment, for separation from God, and for the death that inevitably results. The law of God stood against sinful humankind and demanded they be destroyed, and Satan and his angels loved it. They delighted in the destruction of all humankind because that meant God could not accomplish his purposes to restore his people, his kingdom, and his creation. 
If all humankind had to be destroyed for their sin, how could God's purposes be fulfilled? And so Satan and his angels' most powerful weapon was accusation. They could accuse all humankind, you and me included, of breaking the law of God and therefore deserving to be destroyed. And the law of God would agree. And God would have to punish humankind as the law of God demanded. Unless he punished himself instead. Verses 13 and 14. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Christ canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Brothers and sisters, imagine you have been transported somehow to a giant warehouse. And this warehouse is filled end to end and side to side with filing cabinets. There are so many of these filing cabinets that you can barely squeeze between them as you look for an exit. As you make your way through, the handle of a drawer snags on you, opening it up to reveal its contents. Folders filled with papers. And each folder is labeled with a date, June 10th, 2020, November 23rd, 2015, February 9th, 2011. You start rifling through the papers in these folders and you realize that each paper is a report of the sins you committed that day. Each paper is a written record of what you did wrong. You cringe at every page. And you gasp when you see at the bottom of each page a line that reads, debt to be paid, death, and your own signature right next to it. As you're reading through these papers, remembering the moments of selfishness, of lust, of pride, of hatred they record, you hear sound from the far end of the warehouse You head towards the sound, and as you get closer, you realize it is a sound of drawers being opened. Someone is rummaging through the records of all you had done wrong and reading each paper. Soon you're standing close enough to this person to see him shaking as he reads, but it isn't anger in his eyes. It isn't disgust, it's not even disappointment. It's just compassion, only grace. And it's then you notice that he isn't just reading your papers, he's signing them too over your signature, writing his name where yours belongs, claiming each sin as his own and promising to pay each debt with his own death because he loves you. This is the triumph of Christ, brothers and sisters. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands, nailing it to the cross so that no one above or below the earth could accuse us, condemn us, or call for our destruction or punishment ever again. As Paul declared in Romans 8, 33 to 35, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
with no one to accuse us, brothers and sisters. With our sins forgiven, God is free to fill us with his Holy Spirit to begin the new creation within us. God in all his holiness can now dwell within each of us without breaking out against us in wrath, without requiring that we pay for our sins because Christ paid for them all when he was nailed to the cross. He paid the debt we owed so that we might be reconciled to God and filled with his spirit and become the beginning of the new creation, the re-creation of all reality. Brothers and sisters, this is the triumph of Christ. Christ's path to victory was cross-shaped. His triumph came by way of the cross. It's often suggested that to win in the various arenas of life, whether martial or social or political, we must be willing to play by the same rules as our competitors. We must be willing to stoop down to their level to get into the mud with them. We have to pick a side and we have to do everything in our power to push our side forward. If that means oversimplifying complex problems to make our side solutions easier to support, then we get that propaganda machine running. If that means insulting and demeaning the other side to shame those who agree with them, then we bring out our memes and we ruthlessly humiliate them. If that means compromising the truth to team up with winners, then we hold our noses and dive right in. If that means ignoring and flattening the nuance and depth of the Bible, well then, we find a teacher or a preacher or an author or a pundit who is willing to do the dirty work for us and then back us up. This is what the world tells us we must do in order to win. And it tells us this because it cannot see beyond the binary. It cannot see beyond the black and white, beyond the tax collector and the zealot, beyond the broken world they live in. But that night, nearly 2,000 years ago, as he passed the bread and the cup around among his disciples, including the tax collector and including the zealot, Christ made it clear that he would not reduce himself to either. As he washed each of their feet, Christ demonstrated that he was not interested in picking Matthew over Simon or Simon over Matthew. Maybe he would have if all his hope was in this world only. Maybe he would have if humanity's problems could be solved with specific human solutions. But Christ knew how deep our brokenness went. And he knew how great a transformation was required, not just of our hearts, but of all reality. So he rose above the simplistic choice. He transcended the binary and he united the tax collector and the zealot under the third way of the cross. Christ sought victory on an entirely different level in a wholly different way, a third way that a world without hope and without forgiveness simply cannot understand. And only by his upside-down, cross-shaped victory would the world be turned right-side up. Christ triumphed through the cross. And the following Sunday night, when Christ stood before his disciples in that room, in his resurrection body, full of new creation glory, his disciples, again, including the tax collector and the zealot, they all knew that he had achieved his victory. 
They knew that Christ had triumphed. And so the tax collector and the zealot ceased to be either. From that day forth, Matthew and Simon and the other disciples with them all became apostles. Working not for a human empire, but for the coming kingdom of God. Fighting not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual darkness of this world. Fishing not for food, but for the souls of men and women. Preaching not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. At times submitting to the government, and at times turning the world around them upside down. Or right side up. Never bound to human allegiances and agendas, but loyal to Christ alone. You see, brothers and sisters, the apostles transcended the endless cycles of human politics, human philosophies, human traditions, human kingdoms. Christ was leading them into a triumph greater than anything achievable by human strength, wisdom, or ability. And in their footsteps, generations of the global church have followed. Christians all over the world and throughout history persevering and surviving and growing and thriving regardless of the direction their societies were headed, regardless of the oppression they faced by their governments, regardless of persecution and hardship and suffering, all because they too had transcended, had risen above the binaries of worldliness, the limitations of human answers to humanity's problems. And so we must ask ourselves, brothers and sisters, can we transcend? Can we rise above? Can we look beyond the cultural moment, our immediate circumstances, and the binary solutions this world offers to solve its problems? Can we transcend the endless cycles of us versus them partisanship? Can we join the apostles in the apostolic church in seeing the bigger picture and regaining a broader perspective that stretches beyond the next election, beyond the next ruling, beyond the next legislation, the next social movement, and into the next age, into the new creation kingdom of God? Can we rise above the noise the cacophony of voices filling us with fear and outrage and hatred and violence. And can we hear instead the call of Christ, the call of the way of Christ, the call to carry our own crosses and self-denying love for the sake of a world that desperately needs to know something better than this is coming. In preparation for this sermon, our sister Sharon read for us the call of Christ in Mark 8, 34 to 36, just looking at 34 and 35 right now, then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, to your agenda, to your plans, to your solutions, to your preferences, to the limitations of your human perspective, you will lose all of it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. Brothers and sisters, this is how we win. Not with rulings or legislation, not with block voting and single issue campaigning, not with outward changes that do not move the heart a single inch. These things might have their place, 
but this is certainly how the world seeks to win. That might be how the world wins. That might be how the people of this world win for themselves temporary, term-limited fantasies of power and control. But we have a higher calling, brothers and sisters. We owe a higher allegiance to a higher kingdom, a kingdom whose existence we have the chance to prove by the way we love, by the way we deny ourselves for the sake of others, by our willingness to take up our crosses and to allow Christ to extend his triumph over every part of our lives. The only other place in the New Testament where that word is used is in 2 Corinthians 2.14. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. The same imagery applies here as it did in Colossians 2.15, except instead of the fallen spiritual beings, you and I, you and I are the conquered ones whose captured lives reveal the triumph of Christ. Paul rejoiced to be in such a parade to show the world that he had been conquered by the love of a cross-bearing Christ, he was more than willing to enter into the triumph of this Christ by carrying a cross of his own as well. And so, brothers and sisters, I submit to you that this is how we must respond to this and to every cultural moment. We must ask ourselves not, which side am I on? But rather, where is the cross Christ is calling me to carry? Not, how can my side win, but rather, who in this moment needs my self-denying love? Whatever side they're on. Where is Christ showing his compassion, his mercy, his forgiveness, his grace? How can I be his hands and feet? How can I point to the triumph of Christ, the new covenant, the new kingdom, the new creation? We might be surprised by how the Spirit of God answers these questions for us day by day. Sometimes self-denying love looks like agreeing with one side one day, and sometimes self-denying love looks like agreeing with the other side the next day. Sometimes we will find ourselves surrounded by tax collectors, and sometimes we'll be surrounded by zealots. Christ certainly did. And remember, Christ paid his taxes but Christ also declared the destruction of all human empire. Sometimes it will sound like we are agreeing with one side and then the next. We'll find ourselves surrounded by people that the world will judge us for associating with. Again, Christ certainly did, but he was not ashamed because one thing remained true. It was all driven by this one thing, his self-denying love. This is the triumph of Christ, brothers and sisters, and this is our own triumph if we are willing. So may we be willing. I'd like to invite the praise team to come to the stage and to provide for us an opportunity, some space, to reflect on what we've heard. What we've heard is just the beginning of a conversation that will continue without doubt into the weeks and months and years and decades and generations to come because it's not something we can solve overnight. There are no easy solutions. There are no binaries that we can simply switch on or off and just feel like we're okay. Nothing about the cross felt simple. 
Nothing about the cross was binary. So we should not be surprised if this is something that we need to work at for the rest of our lives. But having begun this conversation, perhaps a conversation you've already been knee-deep into, let's take some time and talk with God. Let's ask him for wisdom. Let's ask him for hearts realigned with his purposes. Let's ask him to show us how to carry our crosses, how to rise above the binary. Well, brothers and sisters, we didn't take communion today, and it would have been a perfect Sunday to do so, right? But I think there was an intention in the spirit behind that. Um, Because I think it's to us now to go out into this world and to create communion, to invite people to our table, to bring people into our lives, people that perhaps don't always make us comfortable, perhaps that we don't always agree with, people on the other so-called side of the aisle who still, who still deserve a place at the table of Christ as much as any of us do. So to that end, I'll give you this benediction. If you would like to receive prayer after service, please come to the front, to the left, and there'll be people to receive you. But now receive this benediction. As you go from this place, out into a world of division, out into a world of contrast and conflict, may God so fill you with his spirit to be willing to take up your cross, to bring people to the table of Christ, and to fill them with the love that you have been given by our God in the Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless you. Go in peace.